This is a Federal News Network podcast. Per President Biden's policy in Afghanistan, the remaining couple of thousand troops will soon return. Now, contractors supporting both the troops and a number of services over there are trying to get answers about what's ahead. Here with some of the questions, Professional Services Council President and CEO David Berteau. And David, people forget that when troops move, deploy, come home, whatever it is, there's a huge string of support that goes and comes with it. So what are some of the questions the council is asking with respect to this drawdown? Tom, that that support, of course, is not only essential and fairly ubiquitous, but it's actually more effective than using military personnel for those kinds of functions and activities. And in addition, of course, there are a lot of contracts in Afghanistan that are not DOD contracts. DOD is talking about uh, their own contracts, but there are contracts from many other agencies, the State Department, U.S. Agency for International Development, Department of Homeland Security, the Treasury Department. There's a lot of support contractors uh, in Afghanistan as around the world. And no one's talking about the impact on on contractors, including, of course, those supporting Afghan forces. Last week, the Secretary of Defense said we would seek to continue paying for the Afghan security forces, roughly 300,000, and the U.S. pays their salary. But the U.S. also maintains their equipment. The U.S. contractors uh, provide training and support for them, and there's been no word as to what happens. We're talking about tens of thousands of contracting uh, uh, workers uh, over there, both U.S. citizens and host nation and third country nationals. So um, word needs to come out. Biggest issue, though, Tom, is force protection, because once the U.S. troops are gone, Who's providing security? And the Taliban has already said that this violates the May 1st withdrawal in the Doha agreement, and there will be repercussions. And more than likely, the target for those repercussions would be American contractors and uh, and Afghans working for those American companies. Yes. In fact, the contract staff outnumbers the troops, correct? That's correct. And even just for those supporting uh, Afghanistan uh, military forces and those supporting uh, you know, international development or uh, humanitarian health care, et cetera, uh, even far outnumber those. So uh, and now on top of that, while DOD is drawing down, uh, other agencies continue to award new contracts. So they're not leaving. They're actually probably going to have to beef up their activities there. A lot of unanswered questions. We'll be raising this with the Defense Department over the coming days. And a lot of our member companies are asking us uh, to weigh in on this. And it's not just the Defense Department, too. USAID and the State Department probably have allied programs that have contractor support in that country. And we don't really know whether those will continue or kind of get sucked out along with the whole troop drawdown. They do. And and past experience, both in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in other places, uh, leads us to conclude that the Defense Department is paying attention to DOD contractors, but they're in many cases not even aware of contractors for other agencies. That's more the purview of the chief of mission of the State Department and the embassy. And even then, uh, not everybody knows everything. And so it's a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of questions that need to be answered. And I guess the money itself gets hard to track because the skinny budget of the Biden administration has proposed zeroing out the Overseas Contingency Operations Funds, where a lot of that money came from, and yet the defense budget itself is basically, proposal anyway, is flat. So the question is, where does that money end up dispersed throughout the rest of the accounts that were not OCO? We've already seen articles being written and and, uh, op-ed writers opining about the great savings that will come from leaving Afghanistan. And yet what both the DOD and others are already saying is that uh, we're going to be poised to continue to provide security. That actually implies beefing up regional activities in that area, not necessarily inside the, the boundary of Afghanistan. 
Uh, and if we're going to keep paying Afghan military's uh, payroll, which uh, obviously they can't pay it themselves, they don't have an economy to do that, uh, and providing these other contract supports, that's not a big savings. In fact, in the in the initial drawdown, it'll probably cost you more money. You got to do something with all the equipment that's over there. It's not free to bring them home or refurbish them. And so there's a lot of uh, issues there. And don't don't uh, count those savings ahead of time. The question of whether it comes out of OCO or whether it's been folded into the base budget. We'll find out later this spring when we see the FY22 budget come out of the administration. But I have my doubts. Yes, I think that's a fair thing to be in doubt about. We're speaking with David Berteau. He is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And then closer to home, you have been also watching in some detail and commenting on a new GWAC coming out from NITAC, the CIOSP4, the fourth in a series going back, what, 20, 25 years of these government-wide acquisition deals for technology products and some concerns. First, let me start with some good news. We, we just calculated at PSC the uh, contract obligations for the second quarter of fiscal year 21, which is the current fiscal year. And that is January, February, March of this, uh, uh, of this fiscal year. And what we saw in civilian agencies is a big increase over the uh, same quarter last year. Same amount of money, FY20 and FY21, roughly the same amount of money for each of those agencies, and about a 14% increase year over year in that quarter. That's good news because the money is there and the work is there, and so it's important for for, uh, the agencies to be obligating that money. But to obligate it, they need new contract vehicles. So CIOSP4, which is the, uh, uh, the Chief Information Officer Solutions and Partners contract, obviously three is the current one, and it expires just about a year from now. So it's really important to get the new vehicle out there. Many agencies use this government-wide acquisition contract. Hundreds of companies rely on it either as a prime or a subcontractor, and it's been delayed quite some time. We've raised some serious concerns, and the biggest one that I want to mention here is that there are some new approaches to teaming requirements that, in our view, threatens to reduce competition and cut off many small and medium-sized businesses from being able to compete for and be awarded a a position on this this GWAC. Um, We're waiting to see what the RFP is. It may come out today. What are they asking for with respect to teaming, and how would it affect competition? They're asking for joint ventures that previously existed. So you can't actually put a new JV together for purposes of bidding on this, and of course, you, that that limits it to something that's already making money somewhere. You can't just create a pre-existing joint venture and get past performance on that unless there are contracts being awarded to it. So we're worried it's going to significantly limit competition, and uh, and and we'll see. We'll obviously we'll see once the RFP comes out. But I'm I'm concerned about it. And they've got a little bit of a timing problem because sometimes, given the age we live in, there are pre-award protests on the issuance of an RFP. And so this whole thing could get crunched up against that deadline you mentioned, a year off. A year is not a long time to award something that has hundreds of potential awards and and more than a dozen categories of awards in everything from hub zone companies to emerging large businesses, meaning they used to be small, but now they've gotten bigger. And so the complexity of this is is significant. And, you know, we've been for some time uh, after the federal government to take actions to reduce procurement lead time. These are likely to be things that actually expand it rather than reduce it. Not good for the government, not good for the companies. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that RFP due any time now, really, as we speak. And I just wanted to ask you for a quick curtain opener on today's law enforcement conference that the Professional Services Council is running. I presume you won't have too many speakers calling to defund the police. 
Uh, well, the law enforcement conference is an annual event that PSC has, and we've, we're actually very pleased uh, today. It's not too late to register for your listeners, and registrants, by the way, even if they can't attend the, the live performance, can get a video recording of it so they can see everything that happened there. But in particular, we've got a, a series of folks from the FBI who are going to be talking about the upcoming move of many FBI functions and activities, as well as contract support to Huntsville, Alabama from a variety of sources. And so we're really excited. This is a live issue, a live performance, not uh, not pre-recorded. And so you've got to be there and ask your questions. Go to the PSCCouncil.org and you can get into the conference. But they're not moving to Huntsville out of necessarily choice of FBI leadership, but this was something mandated by a couple of Congresses ago? Uh, yes, this is provided for in a previous year's appropriations. Uh, I think there are a lot of advantages to uh, – uh, to decentralizing the government, uh, less expensive. Uh, you've got a business base to draw from. Uh, I'm not going to get into whether you should go one place or the other. But, uh, you know, Tom, if you sit in Washington, sometimes you get a different view of what's going on in the world than if you get outside. So I think it's good for government to be spread out across America. Well, it's going to be. And the elements going to Huntsville from the FBI, do we know whether they're primarily drawn from the D.C. area or are they also coming from West Virginia, which was originally coming, pulled out of Washington? They're coming from a variety of places, right? And, and as you note, uh, previous Congresses have moved uh, activities elsewhere as well. It's a fluid dynamic. I think one of the lessons of the COVID-19 though, is, is for many activities, it doesn't really matter where you are physically, the work can be done to support you from a variety of sources. And I think that's one of the opportunities we're going to look for. We're understanding that OPM and OMB are working on new guidance for return to workspaces and what a sort of a post-vaccine workforce looks like for DOD. We're encouraging uh, the government to have an integration of the way they think about federal civilian employees and the way they think about contractor employees, whether it's in Huntsville, Alabama, Washington, D.C., or where. All right. You can probably get more house for your money in Huntsville. Maybe that could be the new FBI motto. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. Let's continue this. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great men theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I, think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees, Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is 
ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves, and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation, uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.